Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. As we all move forward in light of COVID-19, we want to encourage you to make a priority of joining us in person for worship. Because as you know, listening to a podcast can never replace the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we look forward to seeing you soon. In the meantime, here is this week's message. Well, good morning. I'm glad to be here with you this week as we continue our new sermon series called It's Your Serve, where we're talking about all the different things or all the very extremely important things as a church we must do. And then part of this series is we're going to invite you to serve along and and do these things with us. We're very excited about it. And I know Pastor Gary did a great job last week. Um, I, I feel like I haven't preached in like four months, and it's only been one week. So there's about four months worth of sermons here this morning for you. I know you're excited about that. Uh, But last week we saw that we were saved to serve. That's what he talked about. And part of what it means to be saved is to serve our Lord. Well, today we're going to talk all about worship. And worship is one of those things that most of us already will kind of understand. In fact, we gathered together this morning. If you're here this morning or watching online, you already know that worship is important or you believe it's important for us to gather in some sort to do it. It's one of those more obvious purposes of the church. But you see, worship has always been a source of tension since I've been pastoring. I mean, ever since I started pastoring, in fact, every church I've served, I've pastored in three churches, and each time, all three churches have had two different worship services. They had a contemporary service and a traditional service, And at all three services, the contemporary service had grown larger than the traditional. And then they bring on a new pastor and say, hey, can you deal with this? You're quiet because it's true. It's not fun. We don't learn about that stuff in seminary. No one teaches you how to deal with it. And so I always suggest, have you thought about moving to a hip-hop service? I mean, I think it's a great thing. This would be something new, something different. In fact, nobody would like it but me. Let's, let's move forward. No, no church has decided to move forward with that yet, although me and Scott are in great talks about that. But you see, in the 1970s, before I was pastoring or born... Contemporary Christian music started picking up steam, and it started to rise in the 80s and the 90s, and of course, within the church, the local congregations, there started to be a lot of tension. In fact, they started calling them worship wars, because within churches, there would break out a civil war about which music was right. Some of us shaking our heads, yes. The other ones are frozen in fear, saying, what in the world? This is Brian. What is he going to talk about? We're going to talk about this for a little bit today because it's been such a big deal. It even made the newspaper. Look at what the newspaper wrote. It says, there are several reasons for opposing it, meaning the new music. It says, one, it's too new. Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style. Because there are so many new songs, you can't learn them all. It puts too much emphasis on the instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently. That's interesting. And disorderly. The preceding generations got along without it. And it's a money-making scene. And some of these new music upstarts are lewd and 
loose. Some of us go, amen, that's exactly what I think. But here's the funny thing about this article. This was written in, nine, uh, excuse me, 1723. <laughs> Do you know who was opposing? Isaac Watts, who wrote Joy to the World, and when I survey the wondrous cross. You wondered how joy to the world fit in, right? But you love it. Just remember, every Christmas when you sing that song you love, a generation opposed it and thought it was lewd. Also, it's rather well known that Fanny Crosby, who wrote over 8,000 hymns like Praise Him, Praise Him, and Blessed Assurance, did you hear that this morning? And you knew it. Consciously, she consciously used music styles that were popular in the bars of her day, and it was scandalous to people. In other words, the very music that many of us cherish today, another generation opposed and thought it was bad. See, music can be very subjective, can't it? And what's amazing about worship is that the Bible actually prescribes. I mean, it actually tells us how we are to worship. So if we allow it, if we go to the Bible, which is, of course, the source we always want to go to, if we go to the Bible, we can learn today the proper way to worship. And so this morning, as we look at a couple of things, I ask that you set aside your, your personal preferences and all the, the, all the debates we just brought up and just kind of let's go to the Bible together and talk about three common topics I hear about and learn what the Bible says about it. We're going to talk about instruments of worship. We're going to talk about posture of worship. And we're going to talk about the object of worship. First up is the instruments of worship. We're not there on the slides. Okay, instruments of worship. You see, a few years ago, I remember, you can go back one. Yep. A few years ago, I remember walking into a Sunday sermon, uh, Sunday morning. I was ready to preach. I was excited about the message that God laid on my heart. It wasn't here, by the way. And we had two different services, but they were mirrored, meaning what you see at the first one, you see at the second one. And I remember walking into service, and, and a, a brother in the faith came up to me and said, those drums, well, they'd be over here. He said, those drums are for the pits of hell, and I want to throw them out the front door. And I looked at him because he was about this tall, about 85 years old. I'm going, I don't know if he could pick those drums up. I don't know how this is going to work. But I'll never forget that he just assured me that drums were from the pits of hell. And I, and I was so caught off guard. I was like, what do I say to that? I mean, how does that work? And he believed that there were certain instruments that were honoring to God and certain instruments that weren't honoring to God. And he took his stance. See, in the Bible, there's all sorts of instruments used. Did you know that? In fact, we see all of them. We see strings, winds, and percussions. You see, in the New and Old Testaments, we see 10-string harps. Well, in the Bible, we see 10-string harps, lyre, regular harps, and lute. Those are, these are instruments that would be plucked rather than stringed, like a well, well, guitar. You see, a wind instruments. These are instruments that wind passes through to make noise, like flute, trumpet, horns, pipes. Ram horn. How many of those? How many of y'all know how to play the ram horn? Miss <laughs> Pat, I thought you were raising your hand. I really did. I was like, "All right, we got one. We got one who knows how to do it." And then you see percussion instruments, which are instruments that produce sounds when they are struck, like cornets, something you can shake, cymbals, two metal plates struck together, bells, triangles, and tambourines, which is a drum-like instrument. 
You see, all sorts of instruments are used in the Bible. And what's very obvious when you look at the instruments being used and where the letter or the story is taking place, what's very, very obvious is the instruments that people use, the instruments, well, they know how to play. The instruments of the culture, the things that are popular, the things that everybody else would use for music. They simply use the musical instruments that were available to the culture. And you know, the church has always done the same. I had some fun with this this week, so I looked up some fun facts. Did you know, fun fact, did you know that the organ was around before the church? They say the organ was created in third century B.C., the third, three, 300 years before the church, before Christ, 300 years, third century BC, the church was, uh, excuse me, the organ was made and it didn't make its way into the church till about 800 AD. Did you know the organ was around 1100 years before it was brought into the church? It wasn't until the 1400s that it actually became a well-established instrument. The organ was created by the Greeks And did you know it was Roman Emperor Nero's? Look that guy up if you don't know who he is. It was the Emperor Nero's favorite instrument. He's the guy who used to light Christians on fire for fun. No, true story. He used to light Christians on fire for fun. And the one who's credited with killing both Paul and Peter, it was Nero's favorite instrument. And for the record, while like the King James Version does use the word organ, it hadn't been invented yet. Like it it translated the word pipe, organ back in Genesis and it wasn't around in the days of Moses. So the, the King James just incorrectly translates that word that nobody knows what that instrument is into organs. The organ wasn't around. They didn't even use it. And what this means is somebody took an instrument made by the pagans. Someone took an instrument of that period and brought it into the church. Then it became a well-established means. So we, the church has always done that. They've taken musical instruments of the day and of the heirs and brought them in to help them worship. And many of us are thankful for that, that each generation and each culture uses the instruments they know how to use in order to honor God. And that's a great thing. But you see, none of these things are actually our instruments of worship. Paul's pretty clear on that. Look at what the Bible actually says. Romans 12, 1. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your What's that word? Bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It's just been settled. Your body is the the proper instrument for worship, not the rest of it. Settled. The Bible has already dealt with it as your true and proper worship, which means true worship is your lifestyle. True worship is saying, God, here I am. Here's all that I have. Here's everything that I have. This is yours. Do with me, do with it as you please because I want to be used for your glory. Worship happens every single day with every single thing you do. And when it comes to a style of music, we just remember there's no such thing as right or wrong. There's a right or wrong heart attitude. I believe Jesus listens to hip-hop. I truly do. I think that's his favorite type of music. But I bet many of you would disagree with that, and that's okay. It's just preferences. Look, Ephesians 5.18 tells us this. 
It says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to botchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, with hymns, and with songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. We can use all sorts of different music, but what is commanded is to sing and make music from your heart to who? That's going to be important later. But we are told to sing and make music. Like, yeah, Brian, I'm not really good at singing. I'm not either. I was just sitting here listening to myself sing, and I was like, I don't even want to hear myself sing. It's not good. But it does something in us, and you know that. So our true instrument of worship, the biblical instrument for worship, is our lives, is our bodies. Which brings us into the second thing we're going to talk about, the posture of worship. Posture matters, and you know that. What we do with our body, what we do with our bodies expresses what's going on inside of us. God created us to be expressive uh, creatures, and depending on what article you read, uh, depending on what article you read, between zero to hundred percent of all our bodily actions um, are, are, are nonverbal communication. You'll pick that up, zero to hundred percent. They're all over the place on it. But the point is, we use our body to express what's going on inside. All experts agree. In fact, we not only use our body to express what's going on inside, what we do outside will tell our body how to feel. Did you know that? How you use your hands, what you do with your hands, all those things. What we do with our bodies makes a difference to how we feel. See, when a child is young, before they know how to speak and they want you to pick them up, what do they do? Y'all remember that? You already know what it means. They already know what it means. You know what it means. When a guy, well, um, excuse me, when a couple is dating, and a guy gets down on one knee, does that signal something? It sing- signals to run or be excited, right? One of the two. During the football game, what happens when your team scores? Now you get excited. When that ref makes a bad call, what do you do? Yeah, when someone cuts you off, what do you want to do? Don't do that in church. Right, Your body naturally reacts to what's going on in here. And nowhere in Scripture, absolutely nowhere in Scripture does it tell you to worship God like this. Or this. (laughs) Nowhere. Not one place. Not one But the man after God's own heart teaches us. He says to do this. Look at this in Psalms. He says, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Clap your hands. Doesn't matter if we're off beat. We're off key and we still sing. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. Well, I mean, that's just the Bible telling us to do these things. There's one more. Look at this one. It's good. Psalms 100. Oh, excuse me, 150. It says, praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with the tremble and dancing. Baptists are all messed up now. They're like, I don't know what to do. I'm not supposed to do. Yeah, it says to dance. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Praise him with the strings and the pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with the resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord and praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Biblically, bowing, kneeling, clapping our hands, lifting our hands and dancing are all correct 
postures of worship. See, the Bible tells us to be expressive in worship. The Bible tells us because he created our bodies and since we're supposed to offer them as a living sacrifice to him is the true and prosup worship, we are then supposed to be expressive in our bodies when we are worshiping the Lord. And isn't it amazing the things we choose to ignore in the Bible and then call other people out on them? For the record, we are to be expressive And honestly, this is something I gotta get better at. You see, when COVID was here, none of you were in here. I'd be closing my eyes up. I'd be worshiping like this the whole time. Y'all laugh, I did. As soon as y'all got in here, what happened? It's like, you know, this church isn't really expressive. And what's sad is as the pastor, I let what you guys think control how I worship. That's, That's on me. And that's not good. When you weren't in here, I was rocking back there. I was like this, whoo, praise the Lord. Because we are to be expressive in our worship. And I know this is uncomfortable for many of us to be expressive because we grew up our whole lives told we can't do this. In fact, we were told you're not allowed to laugh at church, you're not allowed to smile at church, you have to be quiet. When you were young, didn't they say just sit down and be quiet? Shh. Right, you were taught, whether you know it or not, you were taught to be quiet and don't move at church. And many of the things done were for the benefit of other people. If my, my nine year old was in here, he would be distracting, absolutely. And other things were done because people didn't want to bring attention to themselves. Like they had the right idea. They maybe just went too far. For instance, sometimes people can be distracting. For instance, years ago, Jess and I went to a church of a denomination that uh, we weren't familiar with, but one of her friends invited her. We were looking for church. We said, well, sure, we'll come. And when we got there, it was a little different. The lady behind us was chanting in tongues the entire time. I'm not making this up. Someone was twirling around the front like a ballerina during the middle of it. And someone else was dancing down the aisles and we were looking around, we were going, all right, this is a little distracting. This is catching us off guard. I'm not necessarily saying it was wrong. I guess they were used to it. We weren't used to it. After about an hour and 15 minutes, about an hour and 15 minutes, the preacher came up to dismiss us. So I thought they were just getting started. Two and a half hour later, we walked out. I said, Jess, we are never going back to that church. I'm a bad, uh uh-uh. I said, no, so 75 minutes, y'all should be thankful for that, Okay. You see, we don't want to be distracting in corporate worship. We don't want it to be about us in corporate worship, but it's okay to be expressive. It's okay, in fact, it's biblical to raise your hands. It's biblical to clap to the Lord. It's biblical to kneel down or shout or sing loudly. Because if we do it to referees, surely we can do it to the Lord. Because worship isn't about us. The object of worship is God. We come together to praise and honor the creator of the universe. This means that God is the audience of worship, not you. You are the congregation. You are to join us in worship. You're not the audience. We are all here collectively singing to the Lord, that means the Lord is the audience. He's the one worthy. Not you, not me, but God. He's the only one to truly worship. And so we gather together weekly to realign our lives with his purposes. And through our realignment with him, we then are realigned with each other because the only way I can be right with you this way is if I'm right with him. 
When I'm right with him, all my other relationships will work out. When I'm not right with him, good luck. So we come together to corporately honor and praise the Lord. Look what the Bible tells us we're going to be doing. Revelation 4, it says, Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Look at the next one. Revelation 4, 11, they sung this. It says, you are worthy, Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by you and by your will, they were created and have their being. These are songs they're singing in heaven. These are songs they're singing to the Lord because he is the only one truly worthy of worship. We're not. And we bring this together. What we find is worship is so much greater than music. While music can help us worship, worship is a lifestyle. It includes the entire person, our emotions and our actions and our postures. In fact, our bodies are our true instruments of worship, and God is the only thing worthy of our worship. And you see, there's a reason why you and I, why we are told to worship weekly. The reason that we should prioritize, excuse me, there's a reason we should prioritize corporate worship and service in our lives. I mean, have you ever asked why? Have you ever said, why do I even have to go? What's the point? I have. You see, humans were created for worship, which means you and I, we will worship something. We will give our lives to something. You can't help it. You can't avoid it. We were created and designed for it, which means each and every one of us has to be reminded and have to come together to be reminded, where are we supposed to truly be worshiping? Who are we actually supposed to be giving glory to? What's actually important? And evidently, the Lord thought we should come together every week to be reminded that it's not about us. Because we were created to bear the image of God. We were created to push his image out in the world to reflect it. But we sin, we get selfish, all those things happening. And if we're not intentional about worshiping the Lord, you will worship something else. There's a 100% chance that'll happen. You can't help it. Because God created us to reflect him. And if we're not reminded and if we're not intentional about worshiping him, we'll reflect and worship something else. Because the truth of the matter is, matter is, you become what you worship. You can't get out of it. It's how you were created. One author says this. He says, what people will revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. You become what you worship. It's a matter of fact. You can't get out of it. You can't change it. You become what you worship. And parents and grandparents, especially, I need you to hear this and understand this because you have to be intentional about teaching your children to worship the Lord. You have to be intentional about teaching them and prioritizing what is important in this life because you teach them something and you teach them to prioritize some things. Let's talk about a couple, shall we? Do you teach your children and grandkids that academics and grades are the most important thing in this world? Do you teach them by accident maybe to worship grades and academics? 
Well, how about this? Do you ensure they get to class every day? Do you make sure they do their homework? Do you get them tutors when they need help? Do you make sure that all their work is done before they go and play with their friends or turn on the Xbox? Do we say, hey, it's a priority and you gotta do it? Do you show them or ask them the same level of commitment when it comes to the things of the Lord? Do you ask them about their prayer life? Their devotion time? Do you ensure they've prayed before they play video games? Do you make sure they've done their devotions before they go hang out with their friends? Or is that just an afterthought? The things of God are just, well, I mean, it's cool. But the things of God, well. Have you shown them unintentionally that the things of this world, education and academics, are more important than God? Whether you mean to or not, if you're only concerned about school and not their spiritual life, you are communicating that school is more important than God. And listen, our society actually believes that. We have educated ourselves to the point of saying God doesn't exist anymore, and we don't need him, and we have the answers. That's where society, and that's what society will teach them. You have to be countercultural here. And remind them that God is the most important thing. How about sports? I'm not against kids playing sports. This week, Troy had his first first, uh, game of kid pitch. And man, I'm telling you, I don't know how they let nine and 10-year-olds pitch to other kids because they're all getting beamed and hit. And I'm like, I would be scared to death to stand up there and hit that ball. I'm at the baseball fields four nights a week because we have two in, one in t-ball, one in kid pitch, and one in softball. We love sports. I'm at the field, Conway Fields, four nights a week. Come hang out almost every night. But sports can become an idol. And an idol is anything we give our lives to. And while I know you want your kids to do good and I know you want them to get the scholarship, are you teaching them probably by accident that sports are more important than God. That how they perform in sports is more important than how they perform for the Lord. Think about it. You take your kids to practice. You take them to private lessons. You watch games with them. You watch videos. You buy them the latest and greatest equipment. You even practice in the yard. And chances are you're not a professional athlete. We know you could have been, right? We know that. But chances are you aren't, but yet you can still give them tips, you can still give them tricks, and you can still practice with them. In fact, you're expressive because during the games you'll shout, yes, you'll yell, you'll get mad, you'll get excited, you'll give your energy, your time, and your emotions to a sport. And they see it, and they watch it. What are they seeing about your commitment to the Lord? Do they see your excitement? Do you even talk about it? Do they see any energy in it? Or does it look like, yeah, mom said we gotta go to church today. Just get dressed. I don't know, wear something. Just put clothes on. Does it look like worshiping and going to worship is a struggle, but going to the field is, yeah. You see, the God of sports or academics, they promise something. They promise to pay for college. They promise to give you fame. They promise to give you fortune. And every single idol promised in the Old Testament promised the same things. They promised to do something for you. But I need you to hear something. This is very important. 
God will take your kids farther than you or sports or academics ever could. You need to teach them that and you need to talk to them about those things. Our God takes shepherds in the middle of the field, in the middle of nowhere. He takes those shepherds and turns them into kings. He takes a man in prison who is accused of rape and turns him into the second most powerful person in the Egyptian empire. God can do far more than we ever could. And what God ordains and what God blesses, nobody can stop. If, you, if God wants your kids to play sport, guess what's gonna happen? They're gonna play sport. Did you know you can't stop that? You can try, it won't happen. If God wants your kids to be, excel academically and be the smartest person in the world, guess what he's gonna do? He's gonna give that ability to them. Yes, and of course we should do well. Of course we should try our best. I'm not being legalistic, but I'm being realistic because you are the greatest influence over your child's life, especially fathers. You are such an amazing influence. Look at the studies. You can't help it. You can't get out of it. It's just the way the world works. You are a huge influence in what you do and what they see in you and how you communicate matters. So teach them to seek God, teach them to worship God, teach them that he will take them further than you or sports or academics ever could. And I know you're not a professional, but you can still give them tips just like you do with baseball or football. You can still give them tricks just like you do with baseball and football. You can still help them. And please remember the answer isn't here leaving here looking at your kids going, you know God's more important, right? They're like, yeah. You're like, what's he talking about? Because what we know and what we do are different things. Do we all know, I mean, at a basic sense, that we shouldn't spend more money than we have? How's that working for everybody, right? We know, but what we do, we all know sugar isn't bad. I mean, it isn't good for you. That stop you from eating the donut? Nope. What we know and what we do. So it's not just about knowing. It's just not about repeating things. It's about showing them and leading them and worshiping and honoring God. If you're teaching them to worship something other than God, please don't get upset later in life when they choose something other than God. When you're upset about their decision and you're upset about their life choices, just think back to what you taught them and what you showed them. Because they may just be living the life you set them up for. Let me ask you another way. What do you want your kids or grandkids to be good at? Is it being a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is that a goal? Is it even on the radar? Would you get excited about them saying, man, I want to give my life to the Lord? You go, well, Brian, I mean, I don't know if my kid wants to be a preacher. I mean, that's kind of weird. Listen, just because you give your life, God, your all, doesn't mean you're going to be a preacher. But he will take your child and you further than you ever could. Let him lead. Let him guide. And this isn't just for kids. You say, Brian, I'm, I'm too old for this. This was good for these younger people. Listen, Abraham received his calling from the Lord when he was 75. Moses was 80 at the burning bush. I know, that's ugly. You're like, you mean I still got to do stuff? Yep. 
Absolutely. You're never too old, too young. Joseph became the second most powerful person in the Egyptian empire at 30. And if there's one thing I'm passionate about, obviously it's this. This is one of the most important things to me because God can do far more with you and with your kids than you ever could. So, Brian, how do you know? By my life. I should be in jail. I'm not exaggerating. I graduated high school with a 1.5 GPA combined. You're like, that's horrible. I know. But yet God took me through college. God took me through grad school. God allowed me to get a doctorate. There's absolutely no reason that any of that should have happened. In fact, for a living, I teach doctors and lawyers, academies, teachers. I teach all of these people. I teach them. It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. None at all. And half the time, don't tell anybody, I have no idea what I'm doing. But God comes through. Because when God's involved and what God ordains, he'll see through and he'll take care of it. And he'll do far more with you or your children than you ever or your finances or your letter of recommendation could ever do. And if he can do that with me, I can't imagine what he can do with you and your kids. See, the Bible is rather clear. You are what you worship. Oh, you become, you are what you worship. You just are. Your grandchildren, your grandchildren and kids, whether it be godly or worldly, and you're setting them up for that. And of course, it's not your fault what they choose. Everybody is personally responsible, but you can put them on a course. If they veer off from it, at least you did your best. We all know that. But all of us will worship what we believe gives us purpose and gives us meaning. We will give our times, our money, and our lives to these things. Please understand it is only God and only can be God. So in a broad sense, worship is a way of life. It's our entire lives. And in a narrow sense, we gather together corporately to worship as a church to be reminded of those very things. Worship is the assembling of his people. So as a church, we come together to be strengthened and encouraged to live our lives for the Lord, be on mission for him. In fact, worship is one of the main purposes of the church because we all want to try and we think about worship and other things. So God's like, no, 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 you need to do that weekly because you're going to get off course. So weekly, you need to be reminded who is the most important thing. So with that being said, one of the foundational teams you can be a part of here at First Baptist Church is the worship team. And if you're gifted in singing or not, right, you can be a part of this team. We need a lot of people to pull off our worship environments on all the different things we do. In a couple of weeks, I'll explain in detail how you can be a part of and the different opportunities for them. But now I want to leave you with this, and we're done. Worship is how we love the Lord our God with our everything, our heart, soul, strength, and minds. Worship is what sets the tone for our entire lives. Worship realigns us with him in order to be realigned with everybody else and carry out his commands of love. It's one of the most powerful things we can do. In fact, it's what we were created for. And as a church, corporate worship is what's supposed to unite us. It's supposed to bring us together. But Satan has been smart enough to get churches fighting 
over something as silly as music. Understand that's not from the Lord. He's already said, give your whole life to him. Everything. And when we gather together, it's supposed to strengthen and unite so we can go out there and deal with the craziness that's guaranteed to happen. We'll talk more about that later. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we'll come to you in the name of Jesus Christ and we just give you all the praise and glory. Father, we're so thankful that we can once again gather together in corporate worship. It's so great to see others coming out and being a part of it, Lord. We're just so thankful how we are strengthened and how we are realigned, Lord. And we just pray that you are blessed and honored with our music and with our instruments and with our bodies and with the singing out we're doing today. Father, we pray that that the time of worship strengthens us. We pray that it encourages us and show us and teach us how we can live our lives every day to honor you. Father, those of us with with children, those of us with grandchildren, help us be countercultural. Help us allow our children to be great at sports and to be great in the area of, of school. But Lord, let us never forget you are the greatest thing they could ever give their life to. Help us teach and train our children to focus and learn from you. To seek you in all things. Knowing that we are all only here temporary. But you will be with them for eternity. So Lord, help us, strengthen us, and show us how to do that. We thank you so much. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray.